0: The gospel of Jesus Christ is right at the very heart of Christianity. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think, gives one of the clearest summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time most of whom remain until now the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the good news of the gospel these are actual historical events And they're actual historical events that have real significance, not just then, but real significance now. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the grave as the first fruit of all who sleep in Jesus, as the first fruit of our resurrection. If he came from the grave, then we have newness of life now. And we will have a resurrection body equipped to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. It's not just facts. It's real. And he's alive today. But, if these historical events did not actually occur, or if they did not happen the way that the New Testament Describes them and the Old Testament predicted them, then I'll tell you something, the gospel then would be false and Christians of all people are the most to be pitied. There can be nothing more serious, there can be nothing more important, there can be nothing more life-changing than the question as to whether Jesus Christ is really alive today. That is the question that you must settle before you die. Is Jesus alive? That's it. That is the question you must settle. And in our passage this morning, which is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, the Apostle John writes an eyewitness historical account providing evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And over 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John saw with his own eyes this evidence, and then he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, listen. We cannot go back in time. We cannot go back in time Peer into the empty tomb, and yet you still must believe in the real death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to be forgiven of your sins, declared righteous, and granted new life in Christ. So, what will you do with the evidence? What will you do with the biblical accounts? What will you do with Jesus Christ? Who is He? What will you do with Him? And this morning we are going to run along to the tomb with with Peter and, and John. And we're going to look in that tomb. And as we go through this passage, we're going to try to answer three questions as we go. Three questions that you'll find in your bulletin insert. There's two bulletin inserts for our visitors today. Take them both out. Most of the passages, if not all of the passages you will need to follow this sermon today are in a separate handout with those scriptures printed out for you. Okay, so while you're looking for that, here we go, heading to the tomb. First question, why did John believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That's what we're going to answer. Why did John, the disciple, believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, to answer this question, we have to get up really early in the morning and go back on that third day, before sunrise, early Sunday a.m., and we need to notice that it wasn't John who went to the tomb first. It was a woman. Her name was Mary. Mary from Magdala. Mary Magdalene. Now this woman had been possessed by seven demons. She was an outcast from society. But Jesus, but Jesus came to her hometown and rescued her from the demons and released her and forgave her sins. And She had been forgiven much and so she loved much and she loved Jesus so much She longed to be with Him and to serve Him and to hear His voice. It was Mary Magdalene who was near the cross as Jesus hung there bleeding. It was Mary Magdalene that was standing and watching as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried her Lord. And it was Mary, the one who had been released from the demons, who was at the tomb of Jesus that Sunday morning at the sun was rising. Look at our passage in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran. So Mary is there so desiring to honor Jesus with a proper burial and perhaps even finish his burial preparation. So she wakes up early. She travels there to that tomb outside the city. When she arrives, to her surprise, to her shock, and I'll I'll be honest with you, to her horror, to her horror, the stone is somehow rolled away. The tomb is open, and Mary panics. She suspects the worst. Grave robbers have come and stolen away the body of her Lord. You see, in that day, grave robbing was a crime common enough that Emperor Claudius eventually ordered capital punishment to those convicted of destroying tombs and removing bodies because it was big money because of the valuable spices that embalmed the body. Big money. And so it was, the, it was the answer. Jesus was gone. The one she loved was missing. Evil men must have taken him. And she started running. She didn't know what to do. She just started running. She ran back to the disciples. Look at it in verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So I don't know. I. It was early, I can imagine that Peter and John could have been wakened up to frantic pounding on the doors and Mary crying outside of the doors, wake up, they've taken him. Jesus' body is missing and and so Peter and John, they get up, they're awake now and they get up not out of joy, they get out of, hold on a second, what's going on here, who touched the body of our Lord, and they, they wanted to go with Mary, not expecting that, he, that He's risen from the grave. That's the last thing that was on their minds. I mean, the, the horrific scourging that left Jesus marred beyond recognition. The beatings with fists and rods. The crown of thorns, the, the nails hanging as one cursed upon the tree and they had seen and the spear thrust into his heart underneath his ribs and water and blood flow out and that images and all those images were plastered on their brains and he was dead and he was gone their hopes were dashed it was over but to But this is insult to injury. Let me, Adam, who's going to dishonor the body of my Lord? And so let's find out quickly what Mary is speaking about. And so I think with the early morning sunrise peeking over the horizon, they all set out running. And notice the eyewitness details of this historical event in verse uh, verse 3. Look at your text. It's in your handout. Verse 3 of John chapter 20. So, Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. Panic mode. Let me at them mode. They're running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. And came to the tomb first. And so you have the eyewitness detail of the foot race to the tomb. And John, who's writing this book, says, I outran Peter. Now, why is that recorded? I don't know but it's an eyewitness detail of a historical event. And, to be honest, Peter's likely much older than John. John probably in his late teens at this point, and truth be told, I can't outrun Sam, my 14-year-old, anymore. So John comes to the garden, and he arrives first where the tomb is located, and verse 5 happens. Look at verse 5. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So John looks in and he sees the grave clothes, but he doesn't see the body. And Peter, can you just see him, right? Right? huffing and puffing, older guy, he arrives, but he brushes right past John, and he's like, let me in, and he just, it's Peter. He goes right into the tomb ahead of John. He blows by him. And notice what Peter saw when he got in. Verse 6. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb... And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And, verse 7, the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Notice verse 8. So now Peter, if Peter can go in, I can go in. So John goes in. He follows Peter. Verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, right, John, he outran him, then also entered, and he saw and believed. This final word for sight here is different than the other words for sight in the passage. This word for sight is used in the sense of seeing with perception. Seeing and understanding. Spiritual perception. This was the sight of faith and the text says that He saw and believed. Now, Now we are at a place to answer the question that we started with, our our first question. What did John see that caused him to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? Well, John gives us these eyewitness details. Yes, the stone is rolled away. It's not enough. Yes, the tomb is empty. But it was other eyewitness historical evidence that swayed John to faith. And John, in his passage in John 20, mentions this detail three times. It was the grave clothes. The grave clothes. Now remember, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped Jesus' body in linen. In, our pre- in the previous passage in John, in verse 39 of John 19 says that there was a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight of it, a grave robber's treasure. And Jesus' body was prepared for burial. Burial. Between the folds of the wrappings of linen and smeared all over his body, these spices were placed. A large amount in our measuring system, 75 pounds of precious myrrh and aloe. And the myrrh was a sweet-smelling gum, and it was mixed with a powdery, uh, aromatic wood of aloes. So this gummy substance, this powdery substance, listen, it would have been impossible to unwrap the body of Jesus, remove his body, keeping the spice-laden wrapping neatly in place. And the adherence of the myrrh to Jesus' body would have made separation nearly impossible. But here were the linen wrappings lying there orderly and in place a neat and orderly tomb. His wrappings were there. The body is gone. And then John looked at the face cloth, that that head covering, that, that shroud that was used in burial. It was neatly in place, separated from the body wrappings, rolled up. And John is seeing these details. Wait a minute. A grave robber would have taken the valuable linen and spices with him. 30,000 denarii worth. A grave rotter would never take the time to unwrap the body. He might be discovered. And, wait a minute, the spices are not spread out all over. The the L the aloe and the powder, how could the body be separated from the gummy myrrh, which one has said, quotes, glues linen to the body no less firmly than lead, end quotes. John saw the evidence and believed. Could it be that he is alive? At that moment, John believed, the text says, that Jesus rose from the dead due to the eyewitness evidence when he saw that Jesus' body had passed through the linen wrappings and left them there, spices and all in perfect order. This had to be an invasion of the power of God. The resurrection body of Christ must have passed through the grave clothes, leaving them in place. And this left an impression of John, for he alone records that Jesus in his resurrection body passed through the walls of the house to visit in this passage with his disciples, showing the marks of his redemption and saying, peace be with you. So it made an impression on John. John knew that Jesus had died. He saw the spear. He knew this was no swooning or no fainting, like he wasn't really dead. He had saw the the complete obliteration of the Christ. He knew he was dead. He couldn't have been revived in the tomb. And his corpse had been wrapped by believers from among the Jewish leaders. But there's evidence of the empty tomb, yes, but the evidence of the grave clothes. This was enough for John. But there's more. Jesus appeared bodily to many after the resurrection. Paul wrote in 56 AD that over 500 people had seen the risen Christ and most of them were still alive, Paul says at the time of this writing. Go ask them. And all all the Jewish leaders, the ones that hated him, All they had to do is produce the dead body and they can put a stake, you could put a nail in Christianity. They couldn't. The truth is that those defeated and discouraged disciples due to the death of their Savior were huddled behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jews. And then Jesus appeared to them and they witnessed his resurrection, life, and the marks of their redemption. And soon, they would be preaching a living Christ and the hope of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And the disciples would be persecuted for it. And all of the disciples except for John would die a horrific, a horrific martyr's death. And they all would would they all die for what they knew good and well was a lie? One has said, quotes, the preaching and the rapid growth of the early church are alike unexplainable apart from the empty tomb, end quotes. And John, even apart from the appearance of the risen Christ to him, saw the evidence of the ordered grave cloths, still packed in spices. He deeply considered and he perceived his eyes were opened to see. And he believed that Jesus was alive. And that's what makes verse 9 so very out of place. Look at it. That's what makes verse 9 so out of place. And that leads us to our second question. Second why does John mention that he doesn't understand Scripture? Look at it. Let's, I want you to see this. So this is super important. Look at verse 8 again. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. Why? For the reason. Four, verse 9, what? For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He believed. You might expect that John would say he saw and believed, for he understood. It dawned on him that the Old Testament Scripture predicted the death and resurrection of the Messiah. But the text says the opposite. It's negative. They didn't understand the Scripture. And John is writing this, right? Later on, he's reflecting on this. And John is saying that his faith, listen, his faith, while real, was marked by a serious deficiency, a lack of understanding of the Scriptures. John is almost apologetic that he needed physical evidence, the grave clothes, in order to believe. Why? Because John knows that every future believer's faith must rest upon the Scriptures, the testimony of the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, not on the testimony of what you've seen with your own eyes and John knows this this indeed is the point of his book and so if you turn back just to see one thing look at John 19:35 just look back if you're there I'll just read it I'm getting a little bit of feedback um, and he who had seen has testified Now look at verse 35, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe, for, again, verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. How do we know that John is telling the truth in his account? Because the scriptures verify his account. And after the resurrection, Jesus is walking. Jesus is risen from the grave. He's walking to a little town called Emmaus. He's walking with two other disciples. They don't recognize Jesus and he's asking them questions and those disciples are so depressed they don't think Jesus is alive their hopes are dashed and they don't recognize Jesus and Jesus is listening and listening and then he kind of stops listening and starts talking and he says and at the end of the book of Luke I think verse, chapter 24 verse 25 and he said to them oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe to believe what? To believe in the evidence, to believe the women, to believe the angels, to believe the grave clothes? No. Slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets, all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then down in verse 44 of Luke 24. Now He said to them, These are My words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus opened the minds of His disciples to the meaning of the Scripture, and it changed everything. And John is filled with this as he writes his Gospel. And he's begging the readers To trust the Scriptures. To trust the Word of God and to believe. For the Scriptures said that His clothing would be untorn and His lot and lots would be cast for His inner garment. And that was to fulfill Psalm 22, verse 18. And Jesus, in order to fulfill the Scriptures, said, I am thirsty. Psalm 69, verse 21 Jesus' legs were not broken to fulfill Exodus 12, verse 46. And his side was pierced in the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. And John wants us to see that the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ was prophesied over a thousand years before it ever happened. And he wants us to say... The Scriptures are your ultimate testimony. The Scriptures are the ultimate eyewitness account. They are the ultimate authority. Look, I had to see. I had to see to believe. That can't be you. You can't go back. You must read and believe. You must believe the Scriptures. That's his whole point. In this passage, we cannot see the spear enter in. We cannot see the empty tomb. We must see with the eyes of faith as the Holy Spirit of Christ opens our minds to believe the Scriptures, the eyewitness accounts of the Scripture. If you're going to find salvation today, the resting place of your faith must be in the written testimony of the living and enduring Word God, it must be, and the word of God says something amazing. Look at it, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes. And that leads us to our third question, so you can see why it's so important that you believe this truth today and you settle it today and that today you pass out of death and into the life. Today you are declared forgiven. Today you are declared righteous. Today the spirit of Christ lives within and gives you a new heart. That today is the day of your salvation. That's my prayer, that everyone who hears this message would hear the word of the testimony of Christ in the scriptures and believe. So third, why must Jesus rise from the dead? The text says in verse 9, the scriptures say that he must rise. He must. That is the Greek word that is a very interesting Greek word. It is very emphatic. It is a divine necessity. It is necessary would be a good way to translate that. It is absolutely, he must rise. Why is that? two reasons. Number one, here's why it's important for you to believe this. Number one, he must rise because of canceled sin. Because of canceled sin. Now listen, you and I are sinners. You've heard it, right? It's just cliche. We're sinners. Sin simply means disobeying God and doing what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do. It's saying, God, you head over there on the shelf, I'm going to live my life. That's sin. And you see, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for your sin is eternal death in a place called hell. Now, listen, at the cross of Calvary, when Jesus hung there, all the sins of every person who would ever believe were placed upon Jesus. And Jesus, in those six hours, paid the full just penalty for your law breaking, for you breaking the scriptures, for breaking the commands of God. He paid that in six hours. And he could finish eternal sin, the eternal penalty in six hours. Because he was God. And hell itself on the cross, that punishment of hell itself was poured out on the sinless Savior in his body. And he drank the cup of God's righteous wrath for your disobedience, for my disobedience, for your disinterest in God. He hung there and he paid the penalty of our sin. The penalty of our sin is gone. Our sin is finished. If our sin was not finished, Jesus must stay dead and buried. But if our sin is paid in full, then death must release Him. He must rise if our sin is gone. Because our sin held Him down in the grave. And if our sin is gone, then he must rise. Well, let's talk about Jesus. What happened if he was a liar and not truly sinless? Well, in his own life, if Jesus ever sinned in thought or in deed, something that he should have done or left undone, in all his 33 years, if he had sinned, the grave would hold him still. He would still be dead. But if in his own person there was never one sin, then death could not hold him. For the wages of sin is death. He must rise because he has no sin. So with our sin gone and he has none, he must rise. Secondly, why must he rise? First, because of canceled sin. Secondly, he must rise Because of complete salvation. Because of complete salvation. Put your seatbelts on. I'm bringing us into new territory. By God's grace. Lord help us. Because of complete salvation. You know sometimes when we share the gospel with people. We say things like this. What's the gospel? Well Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Right? And that's. Is that correct? Amen, that's correct. But we tend not to even mention the resurrection. It's almost like we don't understand the importance of the resurrection for salvation. How is the resurrection connected to complete salvation? I'm thankful for one of my mentors, Fred Zaspel's insights here over the years. God's Word, now listen, God's Word says in Romans 4.25... And all these passages are in your handout in order. Romans 4:25, "He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, that's another name for sin, and was raised because of our justification. Now, justification is when God declares a person forgiven and righteous." It is a legal word and And invites us, when you hear the word justification, and invites us into the courtroom, into the law system. And we're inside the courtroom, and we see God is the judge, and we are the condemned. We are the accused. And we as sinners stand before God in that courtroom. How can God take his and hit the gavel and declare? sinners like us, and you know you are, forgiven, righteous. How can He do that when we're sinners? And we know it and He knows it. After all, He's a just judge. He doesn't let the guilty get away. He is good and just. So our salvation is a real problem. The answer is that Jesus paid the whole penalty of our sin, in our place, on the cross, listen, as a representative substitute. The demands of justice that God the judge will enforce have been satisfied. So the just judge can declare us forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. But I'm missing a word. He must declare us forgiven and righteous. There's more to our salvation. In order to be saved and go to heaven, you, here's some really bad news, must be 100% righteous. Perfect. How are you doing with that? The Bible says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. What? One little look, one little word, and it's over? Yes. That's how just God is. That's how bad sin is. And so God the judge, in order to look at us and justify us, which is to declare you forgiven and righteous, he has to say to you, not only, Brandon, the moment you believe forgiven, he has to say, Brandon, forgiven and 100% righteous for you to go to heaven. So listen to this. God actually, the moment you first believe some for me it was like 18 years ago. No, longer than that. I was 27, so I, I'm not good at math. God declares that moment I believed in my town home three weeks before my radiology board exam at the age of 27. When I put my faith in Christ, He opened up my eyes. God declared at that moment. By faith alone, Jeff, you're forgiven. Jeff, you're righteous. I declare that, that you have done all that you ought to have done. You are righteous. And I, I ask myself, is God blind or something? No, no. The resurrection of Jesus gives the answer. Listen very carefully. The hope of Israel, the hope of Israel was the resurrection of Of the righteous. As one has said, quotes, there are traces of the resurrection hope as far back as Genesis and the day of the Messiah. In the day of the Messiah, the righteous. So long oppressed in the Old Testament, would be vindicated by resurrection. Before God, they would be acknowledged as his, and all the world would finally know it. Finally, the tables would be turned and the righteous would be acknowledged as such, In quotes. And Jesus Christ was the very first to experience that resurrection, In quotes. He came out of the tomb with a glorified body. He came in power. He came in power and resurrection power. He had entered when He came out. He had entered the age to come. And so His resurrection declares something. The Pharisees declared, you're evil. The crowd yelled, crucify him, crucify him. But God declared as he burst forth from the grave that Jesus is not guilty, that Jesus is perfectly righteous. He declared him holy as he burst forth from the grave. Jesus said he would give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said that he would lay his life down for the sheep. And the resurrection announced that it worked. The resurrection vindicated Christ. God declared the Christ not guilty and perfectly righteous as He burst forth from the grave. And it was Jesus' very own righteousness, His own obedience that led to the not guilty but righteous verdict from God the Judge. That led to Jesus' own justification. You say, how in the world does that connect to me? Here's the good news. When we simply stop trying to be righteous in our own self, earning our holiness before God, and we believe in Jesus... We are connected to Him spiritually. The Bible says we are united to Him. We are in Christ. And listen, so what Jesus does, we do. What happened to Jesus happens to us. He died, we died to sin. When He rose, we rose to new life, new creations in Christ Jesus. When He died, He was buried, He was condemned, He was accursed of God for our sin. But, when He rises and is declared the righteous Son of God, we are declared righteous in Him by faith alone. Can you believe that? You see, when we believe in Jesus, we are connected to Him. He he represents us as our substitute, both in His death and in His life. We're connected to Him. He not only pays for our sin and forgives us in His death, but He rises from the grave and is declared righteous so that united to Him by faith, we are not only forgiven, we are righteous in Him. And here's what I'm saying. Are you ready? The death of Christ secured our forgiveness and the resurrection of Christ secured our righteousness so that the just judge of the earth can throw the gavel down and declare you in Christ by faith alone, forgiven and righteous in Him. Therefore, He must rise. Which makes some sense of the resurrection. No wonder the gospel is not just the cross, but the resurrection. No wonder Paul could write in Romans 4.25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, that's the cross, and was raised for our justification. No wonder Paul could write that. No wonder Paul, at the end of his ministry, at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, could trash talk death itself when he writes, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a gospel. The question is, are you going to believe it, or are you going to die in your sins? Do you really want to represent yourself? I'm a terrible lawyer. I, I'm too emotional. Do you really want to represent yourself before the thrice holy judge of the universe and your resume of your works? Or do you want the resume of another? You've got to connect to Him and all you've got to do is put your faith into Him. And that reminds me of a passage in your handout of Doubting Thomas. Some of you are there. Doubting Thomas, when Jesus rose from the grave, he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. i got to see it to believe. Verse John 20, verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were there again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger. And see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Next verse. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Oh, that is all He's calling you to do here this morning. Believe into Jesus. Stop trying to earn salvation. Stop trying to work for it. You can't do it. You're not, you can't forgive your own sins. You can't earn a perfect righteousness. You've got to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as recorded in the testimony of Scriptures. And that is why we have a gift for you here today. If you are a visitor, if, if, if you are visiting here today, maybe you don't know the Lord, maybe you do, for our guests, first, please, brothers and sisters, members of the church, as you exit the doors, there's a copy of the Gospel of John, and, it, and I would ask you just to say, Lord, if you're real, if this is real, open up my eyes like you did those disciples on that road and show me that it's true, and I would ask you to read the book of John. And if there's, and brothers and sisters, if there's some left, take a copy, but if you take one, give it to an unbeliever in your life that you love and ask them to read that copy of the book of John. Because here's the deal. You can't look into the empty tune. But on judgment day, this will not be an excuse. Think about that judge in that courtroom. Do you want to stand alone before God is the just judge? Or do you want to have a really good lawyer an advocate named Jesus representing you as your substitute. Hebrews 10, 27, the Bible says, and and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Judgment is coming. And all you need to do today is say, Jesus, I... I've recognized that I'm done, done. I see it. I see that you're real. I see why you had to die for me and rise from the dead, and I need your righteousness. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins and grant me new life. And I will follow you all the days of my life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus promises something incredible. Listen to these words in John five twenty four: Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into the judgment but has passed out of death and into life, into eternal life, into the resurrection life of Jesus. Let us pray.